If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie show where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. A Nassau County native, Hall of Famer Richie Moran attended Sawanak High School in Floral Park, New York in the 1950s on Long Island. As a midfielder, he helped his school post four undefeated seasons in lacrosse. He continued his lacrosse playing career at the University of Maryland, helping the Terrapins win a national championship in 1959. From the 1960s to the 1990s, Moran served as a head lacrosse coach mentoring boys as they transitioned to men at Manhasset High School, Elmont High School, and Cornell University. He also served as the head lacrosse coach at Long Island Lacrosse Club. He would go on to serve the Big Red of Cornell for 29 seasons, winning three national championships and 15 Ivy League championships. Moran set an NCAA record as he guided his team to 42 consecutive victories from 1976 to 1978 and an Ivy League record 39 straight conference wins from 1973 to 1979. He is a three-time Division I Lacrosse Coach of the Year and served as the head coach of the 1978 U.S. National Team. Listen to his oral history today on The Fred Opie Show and purchase a copy of his 2017 autobiography, It's Great to Be Here. That's today on The Fred Opie Show. My mother came here in 1915. My dad came in 1916. I've been over to Ireland to visit relatives. That part of the family extends back to the mid-1800s. My mother came from Clare. And she came over here. She was a uh, domestic for the Vanimal family. And my dad came from Sligo, and he was involved with uh, steam lines on steamships. Where did you actually grow up? Uh, New High Park, Long Island. I was the last of eight children. I had five brothers, two sisters. You know, when I was growing up, everybody thought, the last person in the family would be spoiled. You didn't get spoiled during the Second World War. We had rationing, got one pair of shoes every six months, if you were lucky. You know, you didn't have these wonderful gifts that everybody gets at Christmas time. In fact, my dad was kind enough to make me a scooter out of wood and rollerblades. That to me was like a Cadillac. You know, it was a, it was a great life. Had a wonderful neighborhood. Two blocks, we had 27 men that were in the Second World War, and two women that were in there as wax. It was a difficult time. Uh, my oldest brother had gone to West Point, graduated in 1942, became a pilot, and unfortunately, uh, we lost him on June 17, 1944. Heartbreaking for my parents, but at the same token, they, they loved the United States. They realized what was being done in Europe and Asia, and we needed people to stop it. Everybody volunteered in hundreds of ways. I remember the day the telegram came. I would say that I grew up pretty quickly, even though I was seven years old. 
I can see the anguish in my parents' faces, the feelings from my siblings, my brothers and sisters, neighbors. In terms of your parents, were they athletic? My mother liked to dance. Uh, my father was uh, played uh, Gaelic football and hurling. So there were two sports in Ireland that he really enjoyed. We had a, a local baseball team in a neighborhood, and he would come out and, and try his luck at hitting the ball and also pitching. So I would say, you know, for that time and that era, uh, I was being athletic. I grew up in an ethnic neighborhood. We had a Polish family, Jewish family, black family, Italians. It was, it was just marvelous. So I went to Swanica and played freshman baseball and freshman football. My freshman football coach was Bill Rich, who also was a lacrosse coach. Coming from a parochial school, I didn't even know what lacrosse was. And some of these young men had played in their grammar schools. And they were teammates of mine in football. So I wanted to see Mr. Rich. I said, Mr. Rich, do you mind if I try out for lacrosse? He said, uh, it's not going to be possible. He said, you're already committed to baseball. And one thing I never want to do is take players from one sport. I honored that and understood that. Then I walked out and I was walking down the hallway. He came up behind me. He said, uh, tell you what, we have box lacrosse starting in December. Would you like to try box lacrosse? So I said, I'd love to. He gave me a stick. All my family were baseball people. So I hid the stick in the garage because I didn't want my brothers and father to get upset. In fact, my dad had bought me a brand new catcher's mitt. After about two weeks, box lacrosse started, got the stick out, went to school, and got involved in box lacrosse. And Mr. Rich was definitely uh, a person that started me on a career. Uh, Mr. Rich got to Swanica High School right after the war. He was in the Navy. He was an officer in the Navy. And by that time, so when I got out of the lacrosse program, it started in 1938. So when he got there in 45, 46, probably 46, he became the lacrosse coach because he had played in high school and he had played at Syracuse. He was so organized and demanded a discipline that he got athletes coming out that started to develop each day. He had great fundamentals. He taught fundamentals like most people would talk about getting a doctor or in medical school. He was just so so fantastic. His technique, his coaching. We, we learned a lot uh, from Mr. Rich, not just lacrosse. We learned how to think about sportsmanship, appreciate our teammates, respect our... Uh, opponents, and above all, don't miss any classes. For four years, I never missed a class in high school. I would sneak out, and there was a bank wall at the end of my block up toward Jericho Turnpike, and I'd go to that wall and start working on catching. Then I'd put a square on a wall so I could aim for that square. And then gradually, I got to handle the stick better. There were wooden sticks in those days. No wooden stick was, was the same. I was really fortunate. I had a good stick, 
I decided to do my own training and then, of course, getting ready to play box lacrosse. I graduated in January. I was advised not to hang around. Don't wait until September. Go to college. So I went to Cortland for six months. And then Bill Rich got an opportunity to speak on my behalf to the coaches at the University of Maryland. They were just fantastic men. Al Hagee and Jack Faber were my two coaches at Maryland. And Bill Rich was really instrumental in me going to Maryland. I had a scholarship. We had a training meal. And I also had uh, a job, uh, which is part of my scholarship, to uh, wash and wax four floors of the dormitory. Did it every Sunday. It was good. It really, uh, it was me getting a chance to give something back. Who were some of the Hall of Famers you played with at Maryland? Uh, Dick Corrigan. Unfortunately, Dick passed away about two months ago. Ernie Betts. Ernie eventually became a pilot for... um, Air Force One. What was your major? I had a couple majors. I was involved with history, physical education. I dabbled in physical therapy. And I also took courses in industrial safety, which was a brand new program in the 50s. I mean, we didn't have OSHA. We didn't have helmets. We didn't have goggles. Industrial safety was a, a booming field. Where do you go after Maryland? I was in uh, Air Force ROTC at Maryland. Everybody had to take ROTC for two years. So I was going to stay in. Then they increased time after graduation to uh, five years from three. So I decided, wow, I don't know if I want to do that. I got out of ROTC. And the minute I got out of ROTC, my draft status went up to number five, which meant I'm getting drafted in January. I went around to all the various units, Coast Guard, Army, Navy, the Marines had the only opening. I became a Marine, one of the greatest things I've ever done. Total six years, a year and a half active duty, and then I was on reserve duty for five. What impact did the military service have on you and who you became later as a coach? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, We all went to Paris Island. Groomers got on a train in New York, wound up in Yamasee, South Carolina, about 4.30 in the morning. Immediately, everywhere you're parking, and I'm not talking about dogs, drill instructors were unbelievable. I used to have nightmares. They got disorganized quickly. And from that point on, I realized I was in the right place because the discipline was unbelievable. The uh, teamwork was remarkable. I could have asked for better training. I came out in unbelievable condition, mentally and physically. When I came out of Maryland, uh, I became a playboy. Went to New York City too much. Came back to 3 o'clock in the morning. Did that for about a week and a half. My mother woke me up one morning. She says, come on down for breakfast. <laughs> and uh, she says, sorry tonight. Uh, you either going to sleep in a garage or out in a tool shed. Because she said... I'm locking the door, and you're not coming home late. You're really wasting your time, and I love my mother. She said, why don't you go over to your high school, so I got high school, and see if they need any substitute teachers. I went over there, spoke to a gentleman by the name of Howard Nordahl, and 
he said, yeah, we can, we can use some, some people uh, in your area, the history, physical education. He said, if we need somebody, I'll call you. Two days later, he called me. And I worked for a full week. At the end of that week, he said, uh, can I get a chance to speak to you? I said, sure. He said, we have a teacher here that is going to be out for about two months. Would you like to handle that class? So I'm thinking, you know, it's history. He said, I'll take you up where the class is. Well, he took me up, and it actually was a class with students that had extensive disabilities. Now, I went to that school for four years. I didn't even know that program existed. We came back down to his office, and I said, Mr. Nordle, uh, I don't think I'm qualified to really do justice with these young people. He said, well, give us some thought this weekend. So I went home, talked to my mother. She said, why don't you go over to Hoster and see if they have any books in the library? Well, I'm not a student at Hoster, but I went over and I explained to the woman at the desk. He said, sure, come on back here. There was a little small manual. I think it had 10 pages. So I took that home, started looking at it. He called me on Sunday. He said, what do you think? I hesitated. And I said to myself, this might be a great opportunity for me to realize what young people are going through that have disabilities. So I did it. It was one of the greatest moves I ever did. Did that for uh, two months. And then I was going to take a job in industrial safety. And I liked teaching so much. I never took that job. I didn't tell my wife until I I got married. I took a $7,200 job. Now, how did the coaching start with you? At that time, we had schools in the district, Cary High School, Elmont, Floor Park, Salonica. I got shifted to Elmont, and I didn't have any coaching assignments. I wanted, I wanted to get in coaching to see if I really would be a thing I would like to do. After about three months, Manhasset had a job opening for a freshman lacrosse coach. Teaching at one school and coaching at another was never done. I went in and explained to my supervisor what I wanted to do. He said, oh, no, no way you can do that. So, of course, I got sent to the superintendent. We went around and around. He said, it's a violation of New York State law, and I became a legal guy. I looked up every New York State law you can think about <clears throat> secondary education. I'm sorry, by the way, with my throat. No okay. problem. I went back over for what was going to be the final interview. And Dr. Ed Walsh, who was uh, Jimmy Brown's coach, and Dr. Collins, superintendent, they both felt that it was going to work out. They called me the next night, and they said, if you want to take this chance, we'd love to have you. Richie, you're going to be the head coach. I'd never been a head coach. And I said, are you sure? We're definitely sure. Now, I had been at a Marine Corps about four months, five months, excuse me. Walked in, I said, no one in here knows me. But I'm going to go outside. When I come back in here, you're going to stand at attention. This place is going to be cleaned up. And I sense that someone's smoking cigarettes. Don't throw them out the window. Because you do throw them out the window throwing you out. So sure enough, I walked in, bingo, they jumped out of attention, and until Dr. Walsh passed away, he always remembered that. 
He said, how did you do that? I said, very easy. So, you know, it worked out nicely. So you're at Manhasset. You you start out coaching the JV, is that right? No, varsity. Tell me what the team was like when you took over. The team had not didn't have a winning season in two straight years. So we're going to lift, we're going to run, we're going to jump rope, we're going to shadow box, and we're going to do things that are going to make us quicker. They pulled into the program. We had a huge parking lot where the faculty parked. Well, I convinced Dr. Walsh and Dr. Collins it would be nice if they could move their cars out of that parking lot to the front parking lot so we could practice for an hour and a half. My picture was all over every dartboard. They were not too happy about his teachers especially. But it worked out beautifully and it made us a team. We opened up against Freeport. Freeport was very aggressive at Freeport. A little bit of rain, quagmire, and he beat us 4-3. That night, I think I stayed up for about three or four hours after my normal bedtime. and saw the charting changes that I thought should be made. And I made those, and then we were we won 14 in a row. Who were your mentors? I did have a playbook from Maryland, and I did have a playbook from high school. So I could utilize those. But I also went to clinics to hear other coaches speak, not just on lacrosse, basketball, football, to see what their thoughts were and what their philosophies were about working with young people. That, to me, was very, very vital. After I got a job in Manhasset, some jobs opened up at Elmont. The basketball team had lost 23 in a row. Nobody won that job. Now, the only basketball I ever played was CYL. Okay? I took the job. Everybody thought I was nuts. I had two wonderful coaches working with me on a, on a freshman and JV level. We had tryouts for three teams. Only 27 guys showed up. Some couldn't them and dribble at the same time. I then would go over and watch Butch Van Brieckhoff's practice at Ostra. George Fee at Adelphi. To me, that was really a start of me to get a better idea about offense. You know, pick and rolls were really established <coughs> across back in the 30s. Basketball picked it up. The box and one was invented by the cross coach at Dartmouth. You know, there's a lot of similarity between basketball and lacrosse. And I think that's helped my motion offense transition. We were a pressing team because at Elmont, my biggest player was, I think, was, I think 6'4". We had little putions, and um, we pressed. Once the team got off the bus, the opponent, we're pressing them from the bus to the locker room. We played hard, and we turned that program around. We're going to take a commercial break. This is the Fred Opie Show. Visit our website at fredopie.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. I live by the mantras, agents of positive change focus their energy on learning. Learners are earners, and we are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Purchase a great book, audiobook, or CD during our fantastic $10.99 or less limited time offer sale. We have slashed the price on my Zona Hurston biography. 
and on Southern food and civil rights, the history of the role of food and U.S. movements from the Great Depression to Occupy Wall Street. Cook and bake the related historic recipes in the pages of these riveting food history books. Read my sports autobiography and self-improvement book, Start With Your Gift, and my latest book, Super 7, and learn how to be more creative and productive. These and other great books, audiobooks, and CDs, all for $10.99 or less while supplies last. And here's some even better news. If you spend $30 or more, we're going to give you a free CD and ship your order for free. All orders will ship in 48 hours because we want you to get these resources as soon as possible. Go to our online store at fredopiespeaks.com and order now. Be a difference maker. Use your smartphone or computer and purchase two or more paperback copies. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show, unpacking history to positively impact the future. How do you end up at Cornell? Summer of 68. I was helping young men from Long Island uh, get into various colleges. And I wanted to give back. So some players from Manhattan went to Maryland. Uh, a couple went to Cornell. And we had the North-South game on Long Island, college game. I was a host for the game. And a coach from Cornell came down, along with a guy by the name of Jimmy Bishop, who was a part owner of the Detroit Red Wings, and also a great box lacrosse player. He came to my house for dinner. We started talking, talking, talking. And he said, you ever think about coaching in college? I said, you know, I, I've got a young family. We just bought this house. Not really. Three weeks go by. I get a call from Bob Kane, the athletic director, who was president of the United States Olympic Committee. And he said, I'd like to fly you up here for an interview. He said, we also have a football position open on the freshman. And I understand you had pretty good success coaching football at Elmont. I said, well, that's very nice of you, sir. So I flew up. I had a two-week session in the Marine Corps coming up down in Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, reconnaissance river boat train. I went down. They flew my wife up to Ithaca, look at houses. I didn't even get the job. We have cell phones. There's no communication going back and forth. It's a weekend, Saturday. So I call on the phone. She said, I just had a great trip up to Ithaca. I said, what are you doing in Ithaca? He said, I'm looking at houses. I said, you're looking at houses? I said, yeah, they offer you the job. I said, Pat, I don't know if I want to take that job. She said, well, could be the last chance. Opportunity football across. And I took it. Wow. I can thank her for it. How long were you there before you won your first national championship? I got the job in February of 69, the varsity job. Coach Harkness was contemplating moving on to the Red Wings, and I got the lacrosse job. I had some great players graduate, and I knew it was going to be a task. Well, I took the two captains out to dinner. But they told me how to run the program, how not to run the program. And I listened to that for about two hours. And as we were leaving, I thanked them. And I said, by the way, the inmates are not going to run the asylum. We'll be looking for improvement. And we'll be looking for athletes to come out for lacrosse. 70 was really a great year for us. Uh, we were undefeated in 1970. 
led the country in offense and defense. But that's when they were voting mm-hmm. on champions. We could vote at number five in the country. The key to your success was the type of kids that you recruited. You had tremendous success with getting kids from Nassau and going to Cornell. So what's the relationship between you and Richie Speckman? Richie and I had a great relationship. Richie was a outstanding athlete at Colin. He was a quarterback there. I used to go watch games. really liked Richie a lot. I was delighted that Ness Community College was established because we needed a junior college on Long Island. It was very important. The legislators were thinking about not doing it. So luckily it got pushed through, established at Mitchell Field, and just started to grow and grow. Now, when I was in high school, I had teammates that couldn't get off to a four-year college. Number one, they couldn't afford it. Number two, they had to go work to help support their younger brothers and sisters. And we had no Nass Community College. So when I got this job, I was going to look for every young man that had an opportunity to go to Nass Community College and would benefit from my degree from Cornell. And I had to get good grades to get in. Bruce Arena is a great example. His guidance counsel told him he should go to Hutchinson, Kansas for uh, a junior college or Fredonia for a state college. Bruce went to Ness Community College, became a great goalie in soccer, a tremendous midfielder. When I was at Elmont, we played against Cary. It was our first year at Elmont. We brought the sport back to Elmont. And Bruce's team was good, but they lost. After the game, I went up and told him how nice a player he was, keep his spirits up, keep his teammates' spirits up, and left it at that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm down recruiting on Long Island. I get a phone call from Richie Speckman. He says, Coach, I know you're coming over here tomorrow. But he said, could you come a little early? I said, sure. He said, I got a young man that's been talking about you for a year and a half, and he wants to spend some time with you. So I said, sure. I walk in a room and asked Bruce Arena, and you couldn't find a great, great young man to work with. And I also recruited Colorado, uh, Canada, uh, Florida, prep schools. I never recruited anybody that didn't play two or more sports. I want I want them to have skills in other sports. Chris Kane, for example, is a very, very good basketball player. As a midfielder, he couldn't hit the hit a bond. <laughs> but I knew watching him play basketball, yeah. he was gonna play defense for me. And he wound up the best defenseman in the country two years in a row. You mentioned Bruce Arena. Bruce Arena went on to not only be a terrific soccer and lacrosse player at Cornell, but he went on to win several national championships as a soccer coach at UVA. He has coached the men's U.S. national team several times, Olympic team several times. How did Mike French end up at Cornell? Mike actually is on a visit to Cornell uh, recommended by his guidance counselor. Now, Mike had played basketball, never played field across. He got in a discussion with one of the admissions people 
an emissions person called me on the phone. He said, I got a young man here that you ought to come over and talk to. So, bingo. I went over. I spoke to Mike. Took him around campus. Got him some lunch. And I said, Michael, Fox Lacrosse can be a great aid. I said, in the off season, we play box lacrosse. And he said, really? I said, yes. I said, it's going to take you a little while to develop inner techniques that other players had. Amy McKennedy, Billy Marino, you name Bobby Hendrickson, Craig Jigger. You know, you can, you can name a lot of people. But I said to him, I said, with, with work, you, you can do it. And I said, you got excellent grades. I really like to see you come to Cornell. Your education, and then if you want to get involved with, with sports, I think it would be great for you. He goes back home. His mother calls me on the phone. And Miss Moran, I don't know what you told my son, but he said he's driving myself and my husband <laughs> to Cornell next week, and he really wants to come to Cornell. So you had now, no, you you had never seen him play. No. Wow. But just just listening to the way he talked, the way he was a great believer in team. He, he committed to his teams and strong-looking young man. And I love the fact that he had such great admiration for his parents. Wow. And, um, you know, freshman not eligible when he was here. So he played freshman lacrosse. His record for scoring would have been never broken if he had played Possibly across as a freshman. There were games where I took some of those players out uh, to give everybody a chance to play. And that was really a wish of their teammates, which means Eamon would come out and say, Coach, let's put so-and-so in. And, you know, we did it. Hmm. We did it. To, to this day, those players have a bond that is unbelievable. I've read the Band of Brothers. I analyze that, and that's what we had with this with the teams at Cornell. Coach, you mentioned Eamon McEnany. Why was Eamon so great? He had remarkable quickness. Two drills that are going to make you quicker. Jump rope. Two things that are going to make you faster. Play handball. Play squash. Eamon. Didn't need that. He, he was born quick. His father, who was a track runner from Ireland, and went to the University of Texas, used to play a game with Eamon called footsie, pushing each other's feet. So I think he built his calves up, built his legs up. Great football player. He could dunk a basketball backwards. His vertical jump was unreal. And football against Rutgers, which at that time was one of the best defensive teams in the East. He caught 10 passes against a Division One team. He made all Ivy as a football player. A uh, punt returner, uh, very, very quick. His toughness in football made him great. We lost the Navy in a playoff game his sophomore year, and that was a big mistake I made. Number one, we had exams on that Saturday, and we should have played the game at night. Instead, we moved it to 4 o'clock, except the exam went to 4.45. Wow. 
So we're missing four or five pretty good players. Well, we lost. Coming off the field, he said to me, he said, Coach, that is the last time <laughs> I'm ever going to lose a game in a Colonel uniform. We went on and won 42 straight games. What did camps mean to your generation of coaches? The night before we graduated from high school, uh, Mr. Rich took all the seniors to the New White Park Inn. Uh, we talked about the season, and at the conclusion, he said to us, men, wherever you go, please become a missionary for lacrosse. That stuck with me from that night on all the way through what I'm doing today. Be a missionary for lacrosse. So when I was asked to go to camps, I didn't know you got paid. <laughs> I, just, I just went to the camp. I met some great young men, and I met some young men that really had some problems at home that needed somebody to talk to. So you aren't just X's and O's, catching and throwing, picking up ground balls. You, you were there to listen. One of the things that helped me a lot was being able to listen and listening to these young men who, who might have had struggles, you know, family breakups. Camp was a relief, a relief. We didn't look at stardom. You know, some people say, oh, that kid's tremendous. That was important. We want, we, we want you all to be good by the time you leave. I once told a coach that was working my camp that uh, if his group doesn't get better, he's going to have to stay here over the weekend <laughs> with them. The guy almost passed out. <laughs> he said, stay over the weekend. You have a commitment. You have an obligation. If you love what you're doing, you'll make sure that other people have the same feeling. Anybody who knows you and talks about you, they go straight to your memory. Did you read some books on memory? Explain your memory, because it's, it's off the chart. When I was a freshman in high school, <laughs> we, had, we had a tremendous amount of reading. I was not really comprehending it very well. So I'd go to bed, pull a blanket up, have a flashlight, and read chapter, chapter, chapter. Read it again, read it again. And I'd start associating things with that chapter. I didn't highlight because we didn't have highlighters mm -hmm. in those days. It helped me create a memorization pattern. And with that, I put it toward people that are friends of mine, people I didn't know that. And that enabled me to retain a lot of events, people's first list, their uncles, their cousin, and it really was a great, great source for me. It, it, it was definitely a gift. This is The Fred Opie Show. We'll be right back. Our scripture of the day is 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Lou Holtz said, We fail to use our gifts because we don't realize we have them. I published my memoir slash career advice called Start With Your Gift. And this is what I came away from the experience with. I do what God gifted me to do to serve others, and I monetize my gift when I choose to do so, and not what others want me to do with it. We're back. If you were going to create a college course that was required 
for people to graduate, students graduate from Cornell, to get ready for life, a life course. What would you put in your life course for students? Commitment is very, very important. Inclusion and respect. Hmm. So those three things would be definitely part of it. I want everybody in this country to be able to include people. We're going backwards. I don't want, I don't want to go backwards. The inclusion is very, very important. And that can be, that can be taught in the classroom. Commitment. Everybody can say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really in favor of that. But let's get committed to it. Hmm. Let's get committed to it. Let's make this country a better country. Respect. Hmm. We have lost the respect factor. It started with high schools not respecting teachers. It's people that are in a position of helping other people not get respect. And those three things, I think, are very, very important. If I gave you $10 million to give away, who would you give it to? What, what organizations for nonprofits? You got $10 million bucks to give away. Who are you going to give it to? And are you going to do lump sum or are you going to break it up? I would break it up. A million to cancer research. A million to children's diseases. A million to the uh, homeless. Mm -hmm. A million to the people that need food, which is kills me that we do not have enough food in the United States, mm. yet we burn and throw away all our farm food. You know, we've, we've got to take better care of our, our own people. Education, this would probably be more than a million. I would like to educate every young man and young girl that never had a dream about going to college. A friend of mine did that in Chicago. He took care of 32 kids his first year, channeled them through grade school, high school, and to some of the top colleges in the country. We need more of that. So that was probably, probably get two to three million. Now, was ever left over, I would probably give it to some synagogues, some churches. I think it's important that we keep our spiritual life out in the open. And you can't do that without financing. The kindest thing anybody has ever done for you? Introduce my wife to me. How did you meet your wife? I was in the science building. I was going upstairs. She was coming down. And I turned to my roommate, who was a Southern guy. I said, Charlie, I'm going to marry that girl. He said, you're crazy. You, you Yankees, you're Northern guys. You know what the hell you're talking about. I said, Charlie, I'm going to marry her. So I'm going to be down. We had a great drugstore in College Park. Greatest lemonades in the country. So I'm down having a lemonade. She walks in with one of my fraternity brother's girlfriends. So, of course, that night, I asked my fraternity brother, could he fix me up? And sure enough, he did. And 59 years later, we're still married. Where is she from originally? 
of Washington, D.C. Does she still have a southern accent at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> Coach, dinner with three people, dead or alive, what three people would you want to have dinner with? Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, John F. Kennedy, Vinnie Labonte. Did or you... i, I got to put a fourth one in there. All right, go ahead. Earl, Earl Blake, coach at West Point. As a Cornell coach, the most memorable game of all of the games you had, this one you still think about. Oh, boy. That's a tough one. I would say uh, 1972, the Hopkins game played up here. Okay. And um, both teams were uh, undefeated. It was the largest crowd for a, a lacrosse game in the country ever. 17,500. Hopkins got up 7-2 at halftime. We came in the locker room, pretty quiet, and Mike Wolver put some stuff on the board that we had to concentrate on the second half. I mentioned to the team that it's really important that we get the next two goals. Really important because we have to shift this tide that is going in favor of Hopkins. Sure enough, we got out in the field early. We didn't stay in the locker room long. And I think that surprised Hopkins because I think they would think we were probably uh, ridiculing, chastising, yelling, and we didn't. We got on the field, scored three quick goals. So now it's 7-5. We go into the fourth quarter. They're ahead 9-8. We score the ninth goal. And with a minute and 40 seconds to go, Bobby Henderson stole the ball, came upfield, threw a perfect pass to Tommy Marino cutting. We win 10-9. The athletes on that field that day, very, very seldom you're going to see 20 players with the credentials those guys had. Um, a lot of folks who are going to hear this interview are younger than me, and I'm in my 50s, late 50s. Coach. Yep. Um, and I have never, I've, I've only heard my parents talk about what they lived through. And we are now living through this coronavirus and my generation in their 50s has never seen anything like this. My daughter, who is 14, my son, who is 17, never seen anything. What have you lived through that makes you think about this virus? What are similar things you lived through in your, in your, in your life? I would say um, Second World War. I was too young for Korea, but I lost some friends in Korea. And I just got out of Marine Corps eight months before Vietnam. And then 9-11, looking at the young boys and young girls who lost their fathers or a mother, there's no thing tougher than having that happen. Now, we have precautions right now. Please make sure you stick with those precautions. You know, number one, we don't need all the luxuries that we have. Number two, it brings the family closer together. Hmm. People are now eating dinner together. They're now spending more time together. They're doing a lot more reading. 
I'm also hoping that this stymies and kills the drug problem. Substance and drugs. You can't boat them here. You can't fly them here. You can't bust them here. And you can't stay on the street corners. So something that we can look at that might be good, I sure hope is that. Mm. Family is so important. Our lives are so important. Our youth is so important. Mm. I do not want to lose a generation of young people. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 